Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 34. Till We Have Faces, The Retrospective. Good morning and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season we've been reading Till We Have Faces, but we've now finally come to the end of the book. So today we're going to have a retrospective episode where we talk over the whole book, as well as our experience of reading it this season. My name is David, and I'm joined by Matt. The cabin fever is starting to get to me, Bush. I was way off. <laughs> I saw T-C-F-I-S-T-G-T-M. I'm like, till Christ's face is... This is the end, and it's not until we have faces. I'm like, oh, maybe Christ is going to put his face on me, but I don't know the last words. No, something a little bit more basic than that. Yeah, I gave you too much credit, David. But this is our retrospective. I am so excited for this episode. This is where we look back. I the la- We haven't done one of these in a while because it was after last season, and they're my favorite episodes. We bring in listeners' feedback. We bring in reviews. We talk about what hit us, major themes, and we thank you guys again for a wonderful season. So I look forward to this, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to first start with the drink of the week. What are you drinking? I picked up the three Glens recently. Picked up Glen Livet, Glen Fittich, and Glen Morangi. And I'm drinking the Glen Livet 12. I learned I do not like just regular Glen Morangi. I, uh, Heresy. I know. I had to cut it with ice and just do that. So I'm really enjoying the Glen Levitt 12 and the Glen Fittich. So this is a double oaked 12 year age single malt. And it very much reminds me of the Macallan, except just cheaper. Well, I'm drinking the Akintoshan. It was a gift from my buddy Joe. It's a single malt scotch whiskey. And he gave it to me for my birthday. Love it. David, when is your birthday? Just after yours. <laughs> mine's, <laughs> a- mine's April 16th. That's three days ago. <laughs> yep. I'm now officially an old man. I totally forgot. I'm sorry. Happy belated. Br- I thought you were in January and I already thought I missed it for this year. <laughs> Give me a second. Um, you got, are you going to Venmo me $5? No, I'm going to. Uh, I was first going to put it in my calendar because I thought of it. I'm like, I know he's in the first half of this year. It's probably sometime. I think I've already missed it. But if I ask him, I'm guilty. <laughs> Maybe it'll somehow <laughs> come up naturally. <laughs> No, what I should then mail you is some money for some scotch. This is very true. This is very true. No, I think a better makeup gift. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's do the quote of the week. And this is from a letter that Lewis wrote to Anne and Martin Kilmer. I think this comes from the Kilmer letters, which were actually recently sold. Uh, and they are the ancestors of my friend Meg. Anyway, he wrote them and he commented about Till We Have Faces. He said this. I am so glad you both like Till We Have Faces. I think it is my best book, but not many people agree. I think, Anne, the three sisters are not very like goddesses. They're just human souls. Psyche has a vocation and becomes a saint. Orwell lives the practical life and is, after many sins, saved. As for Redivel, well, we'll all hope for the best for everyone. And we should toast people, because that's what we do on this show, and... You and I have, over the past week, we have spoken to two of our top tier supporters, Kate and Rowdy. So I figure we should probably toast them. Yes. What delightful conversations to, to both of them. So since we're doing a retrospective, uh, Kate and Rowdy, 
I hope that you will regularly take the opportunity to look back on how the Lord has moved in your life, raise a glass and give thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that is beautiful. That is so good. I really do have a type of scotch. See, I generally prefer blends, but this Akintoshan, single malt, mm, lovely. It's interesting. I, I poured myself a Bacardi Coke because to sip on because I wasn't feeling scotch. But after having that sip, I think I want scotch instead. I might just <laughs> dump that Bacardi Coke. <laughs> it's cheap. And I actually pour myself an actual full scotch. Well, while you're doing that, uh, I'm going to give uh, a slight toast correction. If you recall, we weren't quite sure how to pronounce Ted's last name when we toasted him. And he shot us a message and said, thanks for the shout out and for everything you guys do. David was actually closer to the pronunciation Doc Her T. But yes, in my lazy American, the T sounds like a D. So Doc a D. Uh, and he's drinking a Coke Zero and smoking a cigar. Cheers. <laughs> I love it. Well done, David. And I love that our listeners so quickly hear an episode and then send back in. We have a very, we're very blessed, I would say, from our subscriber to average weekly listen is very high. We have a very devoted listener base because I, I've subscribed to about 10 podcasts probably. I pop in once every six weeks for any of them. And, and I would say we have just a wonderful base. I'm so appreciative of them. Yes, particularly after we've just released an episode and then before that day is over, people have already started commenting on the Slack channel and on the Facebook page. Yeah, it makes me so excited to one of the interactions, but two of just where this can go. I was talking to my sister and we were talking about this roadmap because she's, she's starting to listen to some stuff. She's been watching Skype sessions, wants to start listening to podcasts, which is wonderful. I'm so excited. And I was like, yeah, David's got um, the next 15 years mapped out. This is not an exaggeration. No, I'm like, <laughs> I'm expecting 50,000 people by that point in time and people constantly, I'm expecting Bishop Barron type numbers by then. <laughs> And we might even even let him on the show if he asks nicely. <laughs> I told Kate, though, I'm expecting to get the boot by then because I'm expecting they'll be so popular. There'll be scholars that all want to talk with David. And I'll be on once every eight episodes. It's like, do you guys remember Matt? <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, well, we chatted to Rowdy. That was last Saturday, last Saturday, Sunday. And that was delightful. We chatted for about an hour, just about anything and everything. Uh, he asked for reading advice, uh, and I asked for marriage advice, since he's further down that road than I am. Uh, and we naturally discussed Star Wars, because that needs to happen. And he, he's actually come very late to the Star Wars, but he's doing them in the right order. Four, five, six. He's like me. I came very late. And we also talked about his podcast, the B1 Oilfield podcast. I've got, I've got to listen to a couple of episodes. It's been really interesting. I haven't yet. I'm sorry, Rowdy, but we'll still do the, the, the plug for it. And B1 is like BBE and then the number one oil field. Mm. Yeah. He works in the oil industry. Yes. Which was interesting. We connected before David got on. David was a few minutes late and uh, Matt and I got a chat with him and Matt and I, that was the weirdest statement I think I've ever made. Matt got a chat with him and we had a great conversation because he works in with AI and is an engineer and that's what I do. So it was nice to also chat about non CS Lewis Christian stuff for about five minutes. And then I came on and ruined everything. Yeah, you really did, man. And then you also <laughs> the one that you, you, you ended the conversation. I was ready to talk for another half hour. 
<laughs> he was like, I got to go. I had to eat the food to go and pick up. <laughs> That's fair. I'm just giving you a hard time. It was a great conversation though. I'm, I'm very excited. We Unfortunately, just with time's sake, we do have to like limit it to our top subscribers, but hopefully more do because I really enjoy having these conversations with y'all. And so far they've been fantastic. And I'm looking forward to, we had another one just sign up, right? So we're going to have to do mm-hmm. another one here. Um, so this will be great. Thank you guys. <laughs> Uh, what else has been going on? Uh, Andrew Lazo, he's started reading through Till We Have Faces every Saturday morning. And that's been fantastic. He's done two chapters so far. And he was also referencing the secondary reading material. And he referenced a book, which I immediately bought. It's called Bareface by Doris T. Myers. And it is really good. Until Andrew actually finishes his book, this one is probably uh, the most detailed Christine herself, Christine who came on the show, she's released a new edition of her book. Uh, and that's wonderful. It's now got discussion questions and it goes, unpacks more of what's going on. Uh, but the the Bareface book was also fantastic. And there were lots of little details. She explains that uh, Bata is a feminine form of Batus. And in Greek mythology, Batus, he was a, a tattletale in a story about Hermes. And his name actually means tongue-tied. So it's kind of ironic that butter is the is the gossip of till we have faces. Would I wonder how it stacks up to? I've loved Peter Shackle's book, Reason and Imagination. Just mm-hmm. so fantastic. He gets into the big themes a lot, which I appreciate. I think I like Bareface because it moves through the book a little bit more consistently. Mm. Uh, so it's more a little bit more chapter by chapter, whereas in Peter's book, he takes a few chapters at a time. This is, oh man, I won't go, well, I won't go down that path very far, but this is so much our different personalities. My personality is like, I love the way we do this. I'm glad we do it this way. And it's perfect. We honestly would run out of content if we didn't do it your way of chapter by chapter. But I'm like the type where I'm thinking, let's bunch three together, get the three main points, hypothesis, thesis, three main points, conclusion, spiritual life, go. Fairness, that takes way more work than, which, because you'd have to do a huge amount of synthesizing. I kind of like going chapter by chapter and letting them guide us. But my personality is very different than yours that way. So I do very drawn to the Peter's book of, oh yeah, it gives me the big themes of a few chapters at once. Yeah, in bare faces. Let's go through it chapter by chapter. We'll talk about themes in a bit. <laughs> I'm going to read that. I'm going to read that so I can round out my, till we have faces knowledge. Uh, and oh, in other news related to Andrew, I announced that he's joining our Pints with Jack team. Can't wait for this. Yeah, so in next season when we're doing the Screwtape Letters, it'll probably be myself and Matt week one, uh, myself and Andrew week two, uh, and then back to myself and Matt for the rest of the month. And then the following month and the second week, it'll be Andrew and Matt or some variation thereof. But it'll be great because it actually gives us a little bit of a little bit of a breather. So one of us gets a break each month at least. Yeah, I'm totally fine if you want to take all of them. <laughs> I will say you and Andrew have wonderful chemistry. People haven't gotten a lot of taste, but you only had the first part one so far released. I've had the chance to see part twos already since you've already done that. We're recording this really early from when this is going to be released. And you guys have fantastic chemistry. He's very good too. When you want to say something, he stops right away. So there's no, I noticed that there's no butting heads or interrupting in a negative way. It's a lot of patience, finishing leading space you guys read each other's body cues through the camera well it's a very good back and forth you know what i think really helps 
is the fact that we're both drinking beverages from our laser etched pints with Jack glasses. Good chance to do a shout out, guys. Go to our Patreon. If you want to get those, do tier three. If you want to join our Slack community, do tier tier two. That's really taking off. We've got a lot of people on that daily posts going up there. It's a phenomenal community. And it's still it's still in the early stages. Yeah. And we're nearly at the point at which the listener-supported funding is actually paying for everything. We're not quite there yet, but we are definitely on our way. Yeah, we're two-thirds there. And don't let that deter you if you're thinking of doing it, because David and I have some cool visions for taking this from content perspective that once we get the current base covered, we have plenty of other things we want to do. So... Once we, we definitely can go beyond that and, <laughs> and spend it on more content. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's just talk a little bit about the general experience of this season. One thing I would say, reading this book slowly is definitely the way to go. 100%. It requires self-control, <laughs> but I think it's definitely the most fruitful way to read a book like this in particular. Or laziness, because I didn't need self-control. I would read the chapter the day before we do the episode because I was too I was waiting till last minute procrastinating. I did not have the opposite. You, Matthew, procrastinating? What? <laughs> I did not have the problem of self-control. I just, I, I love the one chapter. I'm like, hmm, perfect. I'll do this Friday evening and then I'll write my notes Saturday and then we'll record it. Well, the other thing that was nice about reading it slowly, other than the fact that it gives you some time to really chew over what's going on in the chapter and reassess everything that's happened thus far, how much am I deciding to trust what Orwell is telling me, is that I also think it feels like we've journeyed with far more people this season than in previous seasons. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because of people on Slack and Facebook reaching out. When Andrew posted that he was going to start reading each chapter of Till We Have Faces on every Saturday, uh, one of our supporters, Peter, he commented that, he said, this is an awesome idea. I can't wait. If you haven't been following along, Pints with Jack have been doing this book for their season and it's fantastic. It's one of Lewis's books I don't think I would have tackled without them. And I say that has been the most consistent thing I've heard from listeners. I wouldn't mind if we created, remember how we talk about recreating a like a four-part series on mere Christianity? Using, honestly... Lazo, and if there's a one or two other scholars that are willing to, a four-part series on Till We Have Faces, because I agree. I've read this book before, got very little from it. Even if doing it solely ourselves, we would have gotten a lot from it. But Lazo helped unpack it. The scholarly books help unpack it. If you and I didn't look at it in one scholarly book and didn't have Lazo, we would have gotten some of these themes. But we would have only got about 50% of it. So I think it would be great for us to do a four-part series that someone can just listen to the four of them and get till we have faces because it is a wonderful book when it's unlocked, but it is hard to unlock, which we'll probably talk about later of the debate of whether it's one of Lewis's best or not. I have my (laughs) thoughts on that. Uh, Well, the other message that we've had quite often, one is from the person that says, I was always a bit scared of this book and knowing you guys were going to go through it, you know, gave me the courage to walk along with you. The other kind of message that we've had has been from people who love this book And we had one listener reach out to us, Susan, and she said, found this excellent podcast after hearing David's interview with Trent Horn. Till We Have Faces is my and my teenage daughter's personal favorite C.S. Lewis book. So the two of us are really enjoying listening to these episodes together. Thank you. And whenever I meet anybody that really loves Till We Have Faces, 
ask them why. What is it about this book that they love so much? And uh, Susan's daughter, Emma, she wrote the response. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> it's, it's really good. I, it's, it's a little long, but I, I, I want to read it because I think part of understanding Till We Have Faces is understanding why other people love it. And she writes this. A large part of what I like now about Till We Have Faces is a skill with which its themes are folded into the plot. Every time I reread it, I find myself relishing anew how cleverly everything is set up. Orwell's possessiveness of her loved ones, and the natural fallout from it. The theme of self-delusion and rationalization of our worst impulses. My enjoyment is deepened by the fact that some of these themes are rather hard to find in most modern literature. It's rare to see a book that's complex enough to admit the flawed nature of human love while still pointing out opportunities for hope and redemption despite that fact. Still, these things could probably be said for many of Lewis's books. What makes Till We Have Faces my favourite is the very first thing I noticed when I began reading it, before recognising any of the themes or intellectual brilliance. The rich atmosphere of the story's setting. Uh, those of you who've read C.S. Lewis's essays, you'll recognise this as the kappa element. She finishes off saying, Upon opening the book, the reader has an immediate sense of being in a new, strange place, one that may or may not be hospitable, but is guaranteed at least, to be different from anything he or she has ever experienced before. That atmosphere is what first drew me into the book and has compelled me to reread it enough times to begin appreciating its themes. Wow, we should have her on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, isn't that wonderful? I agree with so much of that, particularly the atmosphere. I think that's actually Lewis's number one strength as a writer, his ability to, to give a book an atmosphere. The Great Divorce, first time I experienced it. And maybe why I fell in love with it. I wonder if I would have read Till We Have Faces before Great Divorce. I would have had that same draw to the atmosphere. Quite possibly. Uh, one other thing else is we've had some really helpful comments from folks, both on our Facebook group and in our Slack channel. And I just wanted to read a couple of them because they cover some points that we haven't actually spoken about much in the podcast itself. Uh, one was from one of our supporters on Slack called Tyne. Uh, and I really hope I didn't butcher your pronunciation there. Uh, the spelling is T-I-J-N. He said, say Tyne fast while smiling broadly. So Tyne. <laughs> Tyne. And he sent us a message a while back about that scene in the temple with the peasant woman and she worships the ungit rock rather than the statue. Here's what Tyne said. The scene with the peasant made me think of Matthew 11.25, where Jesus says, I am grateful that you hid all this from the wise and educated people and showed it to ordinary people. A text that has been frustrating me, by the way. The Greek Aphrodite seems to me to be a face that the rational, educated men put on the faceless ungit, thus hiding the mystery of the real ungit from them. I feel like Arnim, when answering Orwell's questions, is answering only from his Greek perspective. He says the stories are there to hide it from the vulgar, I suspect he just isn't interested anymore in the gods themselves. He has masked them to be just this beautiful layer over the natural world and nothing more. Here, like usual, I can very much relate to Orwell. She seems intrigued by the simple faith of the peasant, but can't really relate to it. The dead answers of the priest, however, aren't a possibility for her either. If that were true, she wouldn't bother with the gods at all. 
Man, there's a lot smarter people out there than me. <laughs> what am I well, doing actually, on this podcast? <laughs> well, actually, even on that particular issue, Cody commented on our Facebook group. He clarified, because we didn't clarify it, we should have, when the priest says that these stories were made up to hide it from the vulgar, in the book's context, that means the lowbrow and unsophisticated. It, it's not what, we, what you and I would mean when we talk about something being vulgar today. I love how passionately invested, involved in the podcast our listeners are. It's great when you have a listener say, I think you should clarify, or I think you should point out. It's, 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 it's great. I mean, it keeps us on our toes. It's, it refines it. It's, it's fantastic. And sometimes we can just pass off their insights as our own and we look smarter. Yeah, which, which I can't wait for you guys. Well, no, you have already, you have listened to it because this comes after when, Aunt, when Andrew Lazo and David are talking and David points something out that he didn't think of. He goes, well, that's going to go in my book and I'm not going to give you a footnote. <laughs> that's fine. I just, I just want two free copies of it. <laughs> Love it. Uh, related to Cody, he actually pointed out similarities between Till We Have Faces and Beauty and the Beast. Because if you remember in an earlier episode, I mentioned Beauty and the Beast, the whole Be Our Guest, Be Our Guest. He pointed out the parallels. He said, there are three sisters, the youngest of whom is way prettier and nicer than the others. This youngest is sacrificed for the greater good to a mysterious monster. Said monster turns out to be less beastly than supposed. And the psyche character ends up living in a magical palace. The older sisters are jealous and convince her to do something that the Cupid character forbade her to do. Something bad happens as a result, but it ultimately ends happily. Whoa, that's my favorite <laughs> Disney movie too. <laughs> it's basically Till We Have Faces. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I rewarded Cody with a, a gif of Chris Pratt doing the mind-blown motion. <laughs> wow, this guy, yeah, that's, that's well done, Cody. Well done yeah and he had so much so many more great points uh but uh we'll have to that would take an entire episode just by itself uh, although peter who i mentioned right back at the beginning he had a very funny message on one of the slack threads where he spoke about his his daughter having issues with some of the girls in the neighborhood where one girl in particular wanted his daughter to pronounce her as her best friend and she really didn't want to have to choose like that <laughs> and he said when his daughter told him about it, he got all excited and tried to say, oh, this is just like Till We Have Faces. Uh, <laughs> and he said, but as he was trying to explain the story and how it related, he realized he'd been talking about sacrifice and marriage and blackmail and stabbing <laughs> himself with daggers. Uh, but uh, but uh, well done, Peter's daughter, nevertheless, for realizing that love isn't a zero-sum game. Oh, that is so fantastic. I can't wait till later in this episode when we talk about some of the major themes and how they apply to our lives or what we've learned from them. But I like how this is an example of maybe a smaller way, funnier way. Rather, that, that, that is great. Well, it, it does tend to invade everything else. Uh, when Marie and I were hanging out last night, we normally do night prayer at the end of the evening, uh, but we just decided to pray extemporaneously last night and i realized how much till we have faces has polluted my language when i was talking about honesty with each other as we're preparing for marriage and honesty as we come before god i naturally spoke about having faces <laughs> unbelievable uh who else have we heard from oh we heard from one guy on twitter 
Uh, he's got the account Rem Follows. It's the uh, Remarath Fellowship. And he wrote, just discovered your show. Love it. Taken in about four a day. Oh, my goodness. We need to pray for this man. That's a lot of Matt. That's a lot of Matt and David. Uh. As a pastor, secondary school Bible teacher and faculty rep for our Lewis House, fantasy author and Inklings enthusiast, your podcast is scratching an itch to be sure. We should reach out to him. See what he means by uh, fantasy author, Inklings enthusiast. Learn a little bit more. And also, I love the fact that their school has houses, like in Harry Potter, and one of them is the Lewis House. <laughs> Rep for our Lewis House. Wow, you are right. I didn't catch that. I love that. And uh, we naturally have a bunch of emails. Mo, he's on our Slack channel. He's been a supporter for a while. He he shot us an email a while back, and he asked us uh, about Orwell and her father. And he asked, is it really due to her father that she's so broken? Or was it the lack of having a mother? Or is it Providence? What is your thinking now that we've reached the end of the book? All of the above. Yeah. If you have a father like that, it's probably hard to not impact you. I mean, I think it's safe to say that that impacted her negatively. Yeah. You don't have a tenderly, compassionate, loving, motherly figure. I mean, we know psychologically if you, I don't want to, I, I say this almost like, so just statement like, but it's a tragic thing. Like if you lose your mother at a young age, that's a, a abandonment issues come up. I mean, there's tough things from that as well. I mean, it's genuinely all of the above. You have a sister, you feel ugly. The world kind of makes you feel ugly. Part of it's her own fault. Part of it's the world. It's, it's a little bit of everything. It's a cocktail. I think it is a cocktail. There is, uh, there's nature mixed in there. There's bad choices. There's an immense benefits because she was also given schooling by the fox, which was a, a double-edged sword. It helped her to think clearly, but also in many ways limited her worldview. Let me let me phrase one thing or make one comment here that is important because it was also you you deal with the social media. Deal is the wrong word because it sounds negative. In my mind, I'm just so anti-social media. You're wonderful and engaging in the social media, and I'm so appreciative you do that. Um but even e. Cody brought up some really good points. And we've talked a lot about Orwell, what's her fault, what's not her fault. And I'm a big believer in two pillars. It's like the Catholic faith, both and. It's not either or. Mm-hmm. What's the both and? One, circumstances massively affect you. So that creates a sympathy for Orwell. She had some, you know, a, a pretty negative father, lost her mother. I mean, those will shape you in a pretty negative way, i.e. sympathy for Orwell. At the same time... um, we have to identify a sense of agency. I'm a firm believer in that pillar as well. So we can look at our upbringing from our parents, our life, and we can recognize how it hurt us and wounded us. We can't stop there though. We have to recognize we still have control over who we become. And so I'm a big believer in that both and. Have sympathy, recognize it. Understand that when you fall down, it's like, yeah, you know what? I see why I acted this way. It's because of this. But now that I know, I have to do something with God's grace to overcome it. And I have agency, and particularly we have a lot of agency when we call on God's grace, because that can really help us and empower us. So both, both and. Both and. Uh, oh, oh, we also had a email from Mary, and she spoke about how she's enjoying the podcast, but she wondered why we hadn't brought up uh, the relationship between the classic Cupid and Psyche myth and uh, Till We Have Faces. <laughs> because I don't know the myth. <laughs> <laughs> Have I've you never still read not it. listened to <laughs> no. the episode where I no. recorded it? Good grief. 
This is what makes our dynamic fun. Matt's the, 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 the less intellectual, less informed person. I try to bring some humor to it. Still haven't listened to it. Okay, well... <laughs> I'm like the commoner folk that's just reading this with less knowledge. And zero self-motivation. Mm. <laughs> yes, true statement. Well, she commented that Psyche's name literally means soul, that that seemed very meaningful. And if Psyche is the soul, then Fox is the intellect. Uh, and the, she suggested that the king might represent more of the animal passions. He, mm. This is a guy who has very little control over himself. He just does what he wants to do. And uh, she wondered even if Orwell represented the will, which uh, is what we choose, and it's the will that chooses how we relate to divinity. So I thought, well, really interesting ideas. Whoa, I mean, I don't think they're interesting ideas. I think they're correct. Um, the only thing, this is nitpicky, I wouldn't put capital W out when I will. When I think of capital W L will, I think of God's will. But I do think she represents our will rebelling against God's will. Well, I think she, I think she only capitalizes it because she's reading the story allegorically. So Psyche is the soul, Fox is the intellect, and Orwell is the will, and the king is the animal passions. In her will, Psyche or Orwell's needs to surrender to God's will. It's like, what is sainthood when your will aligns with God's will? Like that's sainthood, and and she's rebelling against that for much of this story, which we'll talk about later when we get into the themes that rebel that you need to put down your arms fancy way of saying you need to line your will and stop fighting stop fighting god's will mm. she also had some really interesting comments about the visions and we'll, we'll talk about this when we talk about themes in a moment uh but she compared uh, orwell's participation to what catholics often say when they're going through suffering is to offer it up and she compared psyche to christ uh that as psyche was going on her suffering she carries Orwell with her on her Via Dolorosa. How did I, what, where did, what channel did this come through? Why did I not see this or read this? <laughs> yeah, I think it was one of the emails. Oh, my bad. <laughs> Matt and administrative stuff. Matt and most things, just, yeah. Um, I turn up for the podcast, though. <laughs> you, you, you do. You turn, turn up, I turn up and bring booze. <laughs> <laughs> In humor. Well, tell you what, before we talk about the themes, why don't you read that review that we had from Alabama Irish? This was a wonderful, wonderful review, and I want to assume Alabama Irish means a Notre Dame Irish person from Alabama. I'm wondering if I know, but I don't know anyone in Alabama. Anyways, says, terrific host, great subject. As a Luddite, Gen Xer. Luddite. Luddite. Gen Xer. I do know what a Luddite is, by the way. Just don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Who's, I will relate to that. I am also very anti technology. Who's coming late to the podcast game? Huh. It's just like me. We started a podcast before I ever listened to one. <laughs> this is the one that makes me wish I discovered them sooner. David and Matt are engaging in fun and their love for the subject really comes through. I devoured Chronicles of Narnia one summer as a child, read it again to my children and randomly picked up The Great Divorce a few years ago. I loved it so much. I give copies away. Oh, I love it too. And so does David. When I discovered this podcast, it was like an answered prayer. Of course, I'll eventually read Lewis's whole... Ooh, David, I'm not even gonna try to say that. What's that word? Oof. Oof. 
Uber. I'm assuming that just means this whole thing of works. Yeah, it's like his corpus. Corpus. But until then, I can listen to David and Matt dissect and discuss, laughing and learning all the way. Went back and started at the beginning. I'm actually thankful the quarantine sent me online looking for entertainment because this is what I found. I love that she thinks of us as entertainment. <laughs> She's got to be referring to me. <laughs> David's a brain. You've assumed it's a girl as well. Yeah, I, why? You're right. Alabama Irish. Could be a dude. Sir, You're madam. 100% right, actually. There's <laughs> no reason this needs to be a girl. <laughs> well, sir or madam, thank you very much for your review. It's very nice. <laughs> well, so we've talked a little bit about listener feedback, our journey through this season. So let's now talk about the book. Major themes. Matt, go. Well, we can't talk about major themes without starting with longing. Because I think that's the first major theme that stuck out to me. I don't want to say that's the first major theme of the book, but longing is you and I know, and our listeners probably do, is a big part of Lewis's journey. Longing is that part inside of us that draws us to Christ. It's longing for something beyond this world. It's as St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. It's that restlessness. And for Lewis, that was a big thing that pulled him to Christ. That's mere Christianity. David, you talk about this, the argument from desire. That's very much related to longing. That's huge in his theology. So in here to see Psyche have this longing for the God of the mountain and longing for this amber palace, that was the first thing that really stuck out to me. And I remember you and I talking in some early episodes and even in blog posts of what's the difference between Psyche and Orwell? How do we become like Psyche? Which might have been the wrong question to ask at the time, but given where we were. And she she has this longing and she fills it with what it's supposed to be filled with. It, she, she orients the longing in the right way. It drives her. Lewis used the word vocation. Like she's, she's driven it in the right way to recognize this is satisfied by the God of the mountain, her lover, her husband. And there's a lot we can learn from that in our own spiritual journey. We turn to everything else in this world except recognizing that Christ is the only thing that will satisfy that longing. It's rather like at the end of the last episode that you and I recorded on chapter four, and I quoted the Confessions by Augustine when he said that I went looking for you. I threw myself into the lovely things that you, Lord, had created. And Orwell does something very similar. Her longing ends at Psyche, not for the one who made Psyche. I like that Lazo said in his part two, um, the things this earth were created to arouse in us. I don't remember how he finished that. You probably do, but arousing us a desire for God. I think that's what he was saying. It's from the chapter on hope in mere Christianity, where it says that just because we know that just because the world lets us down, doesn't mean that the world is a, is, is a fraud. Uh, It was probably never meant to fulfill us in the way that we want to be fulfilled. And the very reason for that is to point us beyond this world for the world that we were ultimately made for. Hmm. Thanks for finishing that for me, David. You're welcome. (laughs) So there's my first one, longing. What about you? I mean, obviously, actually, there's a whole load of them. Uh, Probably the next one that I I started thinking about when I was reading this book is the relationship between paganism and Christianity. Hmm. I don't have that in my list, so let's hear it. 
Well, I would just say that I think a lot of the reason I think people trip up over this book is they try and jam Christianity into it a little bit too early. Mm. It's only towards the end of the book that talk of the gods starts becoming about a particular god, this god of love, the one whom Orwell refers to as Lord. And particularly if you haven't read many of the pagan stories, and particularly if you haven't, say, read either the early church fathers or much of Lewis or Tolkien, where they speak about what pagans were doing, that they were intuiting something that God had placed deep within the heart of man that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, mm. when the myth finally became fact. I think if you're not steeped in that, when you come to this book, it's very easy to be thrown off base and be confused as to exactly what's going on. Because you first of all have to enter this book as a good pagan. And it's only towards the end that you see it pointing towards uh, a, a God that is greater than the stories of the pagans. I do look forward to the day we can dive into Chesterton more in about 18 years from now, once we finish <laughs> Lewis. But he talks about, he says, if I wasn't Christian, I'd be pagan. And I believe he was the one that told Lewis, and I think Lewis repackaged it, but I could be wrong. It might just be Chesterton that Christianity saved paganism from itself. Paganism was very correct. There's the emphasis on the world as a good thing was a beautiful thing, but it took it too far. It put all of the eggs in that basket, but Christianity said, go to this point and then stop and recognize that it points you beyond. And so it saved, he, he always says it saved paganism from itself, but he doesn't, he wouldn't be um, Islamic. He wouldn't be Hindu. He wouldn't be some of the other faiths. He's like, if I wasn't Christian, I'd be paganism because it had a lot right, actually. The goodness of creation, the beauty of this world. Yeah, and that's found throughout Orthodoxy and the Everlasting Man, mm -hmm. both of which Lewis read. Yes, it's a good one. Well, we, we, can't, we can't do this without talking about distorted love. That was my next major theme, jealous love. And so I'm going to do the, the negative form of this, no, the positive form. And then, but the quote from Lewis, I think it's from Lewis, love that ceases to be a God ceases to be a demon. Yeah. He's, he's quoting somebody else, but yeah, that's from the four loves. Yes. And so the, the, the reverse of this, which is more what we see in Orwell, when love becomes a God, it becomes a demon. Just think about it the other way. And so that's a huge theme in this Orwell, jealous love towards Bardia, towards Psyche. She's, she's thwarting is, Andrew Lazo said in part two, thwarting arrows. She's thwarting Storgi uh, in her relationship with the fox because she won't let the fox go. She's thinking of Psyche as mine, mine, mine. I mean, she's just distorting love left and right. The description that I like of that isn't just jealous love, but devouring love. Mm. That's emphasized particularly towards the end of the book, that one of the ways of understanding what it means to be ungit is to be devouring other people's lives. So it's the idea that you feed off them and you leave nothing left. It's, it's, it's not sustainable. You'll just drain the life out of your object of love and then move on to the next one. I really appreciated your conversation in the Lazo part two of there's a good devouring love and a bad devouring love. So she's describing unget as this devouring, all-consuming love from a very negative perspective. And someone answered our question. You, I've asked this to you on the podcast. Is Unget bad? Is Unget good? I can't figure this out. And Lazo 
essentially, I would say, put it more in the good camp, but it comes across as bad because of the way Orwell is describing it. Because I would argue from hearing Lazo, Andrew Lazo, I, can't, I don't know if I should keep calling him Lazo. You can call him, you can call him Lazo until next season when he'll be part of the team. And then you can call him Andrew. Okay. So when, when hearing him talk about Unget as this devouring love, like God is devouring, he wants all of you, not part of you. And so Orwell, who still has in much of the book, when she's writing all of part one, her ego, she doesn't want to give of herself completely to the gods. In fact, I don't think she wants to give of much of herself to the gods. And she definitely doesn't want the people close to her who are supposed to love her give in to the gods. So she looks at that devouring, consuming love as terrible. So we get a very negative picture of Unge. But is it really terrible? Because then you see Psyche who gives into it, gives herself completely, and is able to love more. So there is a way that the devouring love can actually be life-giving. And I really appreciated that part of the conversation with you and Lazo. Yeah. And I think it's part of the logic of this book that isn't immediately obvious. Yeah, I would agree with that because it honestly wasn't fully obvious. Even I think I asked you in maybe even part two of the last chapters, is Unget good or bad? (laughs) I didn't know. (laughs) Yeah, I I think if nothing else, this book puts forward a very compelling picture of how bad devouring love can be. It has its own vignette in The Great Divorce with the loving mother. But because it's so short, I think we don't get to see quite how insidious and dangerous it really can become. Whereas that's, that's dragged out over the course of a book until we have faces. And it does. Sometimes it's easy to think because her devouring love seems to be somewhat extreme that we can't relate to it. The extremeness of it. When you really unpack it, you realize a lot of our loves are to some degree quite devouring of our friendships, of God. I think to myself, how often do I turn to God when I need him? And when times are good, I don't practice that concept of gratitude very well. And it's I, I, I fall away from him. And so I appreciated how Lazo pointed out in the part two that Lewis was somewhat writing about his own possessive love. And he mentioned that poem of To Joy on her deathbed that he had never been selfless or never had a selfless thought um, since the day he was born. He wanted to possess God. He wanted to possess joy. He wanted to possess his friends. They kind of served him and his desires. And that might be somewhat of an extreme statement. I think Lewis was very charitable. But at your core, you can really see a lot of your day where you're like, are you going to take energy from me? Are you going to give me energy as an introvert? That's what I think. What am I, if you're going to take energy, I am not going to talk to you. You're life-giving. Okay, good. And that can be actually somewhat self-centered. Well, not actually. It is. (laughs) Well, I suppose the theme to transition to after that then is death to self and transformation. Yes. Can we say real quick before that briefly, because my my next point, my death to self was my fourth point, related to the possessive love was incurvatus in se. Mm -hmm. Which when, when you turn within, I could have put it under the possessive love. It's like, your shames and your wounds cause you to protect yourself, your hurts, and because your identity is wounded or however you want to phrase it psychologically, you turn within and people become, you start to suck people in. They become validation for you. They become love for you, to show you love, to make you feel good, to make you feel better. So 
in curvatus in se, you've turned within. Um, I just wanted to say that because then when we turn to death to self, it'd be somewhat the reverse. Well, in that case, let's talk about something else then. I would suggest that when in curvatus in se, which was the, the Latin phrase for soul turned in on itself, it distorts your ability to perceive things. And that is another theme of the book, seeing and perceiving. And I'll once again bring back that quotation from the magician's nephew. What you see and what you hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. Lucy. Uh, wrong book, but close. <laughs> I do know wrong book. But- this is from The Magician's Nephew. You haven't read that yet. Oh, but yep. do you mean in that that same thing happens with Lucy in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and Prince Caspian? I don't know specifically books, but I just remember. Um, yeah, it must have been because I've read it. Yeah, she sees the lion. I'm thinking of the scene when she sees the lion and knowing. That's Prince Caspian. Look at that. I just remember Lu- Lucy had a very good ability to perceive Aslan and no one else could. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, see, I remember some things. She is named after the saint that relates to light and vision. And I don't want to, I won't get ahead of ourselves. So I'll make the little plug here. We're going to, I think we'll finish on this point, or at least in my progression, I would. Humility in the role of that in the seeing and perceiving. And oh, that'd Lucy, be great because I'm awesome at humility. Yeah, let's end on that. Mm. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> But let's do death to self. Well, actually, just before we get to that, if that, that seeing and perceiving becomes twisted, the other thing I would say that is part of that incubatus and say is your self-understanding is also becomes twisted and it becomes a delusion. And I would suggest that that's the heart of what it means to have a face. Yeah. And one of the things that I've been doing is I've been looking up Lewis's references to this book in his correspondence. That was how I got that earlier quotation from the Kilmers. Uh, this is from a letter that he wrote to Dorothea, I think it's pronounced Conybeare, <laughs> C-O-N-Y-B-E-A-R-E. And he wrote this to her. How can they, the gods, meet us face to face till we have faces? The idea was that a human being must become real before it can expect to receive any message from the superhuman. That is, it must be speaking with its own voice, not one of its borrowed voices, expressing its actual desires not what it imagines that it desires, being for good or ill itself, not any mask, veil, or persona. Whoa. All right. I know this wasn't your quote, but this is... This is slow clap worthy because this means you and I naturally, as enthusiasts, came to this conclusion a few weeks... Well, this <laughs> a few weeks ago from this recording, from release is probably a few months ago, of... Uh, We've talked about false self, true self, till we have faces. We've talked about how the true self doesn't necessarily mean it's all good. Lewis just said right here, when you get to that point where you're at your true self, he's not using that word, but you're speaking with the own voice, which you and I recognize this when she said there was this voice inside of her constantly talking, but she didn't hear it. And it's not a borrowed one. And it's expressing its actual desires, good or ill. So it's not that it's not like this beautiful picture of this is the perfect mat that God created. I'm living out of perfect mat. It's like, no, this is the broken and the messy mat. And that's what God wants you to bring to him into the world. And of course, we, we, we're going to heal and restore and redeem the broken and the messy. But until you get to the broken and the messy desires uh, and unmask yourself and unveil yourself, it's, they're not going to be healed. Oh, that's a great quote, man. I did my homework. Yeah, I'm glad you did. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> okay, with that, let's talk about death and transformation. 
Uh, let me hit it off with a Owen Barfield quote. I did my homework. Ooh. I know, right? Owen Barfield, who was another inkling, said, I almost thought of his grandson, who you met. At a certain stage in his, meaning Lewis's life, he deliberately ceased to take any interest in himself except as a kind of spiritual alumnus taking his moral finals. What began as deliberate choice became at length an ingrained and effortless habit of soul. Self-knowledge for him had come to mean recognition of his weakness and shortcomings and nothing more. Anything beyond that, he sharply suspected both in himself and in others as a symptom of spiritual megalomania. So Lewis was very much about like, get rid of the self. The self that you need to know is your brokenness, your weakness. That's what self-knowledge is for him. And so that's a big theme in this for Orwell when she starts to realize that in chapter one, two, three of book two or part two. And she, she descends and realizes, oh, I loved the fox. Well, wait, no, I didn't love the fox. Well, at least I love Psyche. No, I didn't. <laughs> so it's that, I thought that was a good quote in relation to this. Yeah, I would say the thing that Lewis let go of in that quotation from Barfield is self-introspection simply for the sake of it. It was, I'm going to take an inventory, learn my lesson, and then move on and not be constantly focused on myself because that's Mm. how you foster pride and not humility. Ooh, I like that. And that'll actually be something that's going to come up in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader when we discuss that book. But we will will talk about Eustace at a later date. I was listening to your your conversation with Andrew Lazo and when he brought up the, the, I think he brought up Voyager, John Trotter and the undragoning of Eustace. Yeah. That was the first thought that went to my mind. I'm like it's the undragoning of Eustace. <laughs> I felt good. It was the, I, it's the one time I like knew an answer right away. <laughs> I was like, I know what you're saying and I haven't even read the book yet. <laughs> I did get into mail a few days ago though. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to say about death and transformation? No. I mean, I think that the short answer to that is the first step is that self-knowledge, as Lewis says, of our brokenness. And the second step is just to kill it. I think of the, under that, the die before you die, there's no time after. So that's referring to that. We've talked about that in a Skype session video. So it's a very important thing, but you have to die before you die. You have to get rid of that ego, the false self you've built up. I think that would be the, the final thing. And then the steps four, three I put is then after you've done all that, turn to God which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the humility of there's no answer but God, but that's like the process we have to go through. And I'd actually almost add something that happens after that. And this was the last theme that I wrote down and that's coherence. Ooh, nice. That we were reading through this book and then suddenly this Charles William-esque theology starts coming through at the end. The idea that we're called to carry one another's burdens. And I would suggest that that's a, a natural consequence of love. If you love someone, you want to carry their burdens. If you're a parent and your child is hurt, you would do anything to take that upon yourself. And Lazo confirmed your view on that. The question I wanted to ask, it's interesting watching. You asked phenomenal questions and I wouldn't have asked half of them. But the one I was thinking of is, he affirmed it. Was it forced on her? Because you don't get the sense that Orwell, you don't get the sense that Orwell selflessly intended to do that. But it happens. And she did but maybe she did have a pure desire. Maybe in this whole book, as much as she looks broken and messed up, 
she actually had a genuine pure desire of love for psyche and it was distorted, but God still honored the distorted love in a non-distorted way. Maybe that's where I would go with it. Okay. I would say she would have desired it if she could have requested this to happen. Mm. We're back to the great divorce and Madonna's promise that if there's a, a, a spark or a flame there hidden, we're going to blow on it until it becomes a raging inferno. And I think it shows us that although Orwell's love of Psyche was distorted, there still was some love there. Mm. I like that. Gives her credit because Cody would be happy. I think we got it. We do have to give her credit for that. There was a pureness in her desire. I had before humility, the one other one that I had in between, I kind of had progression to the book. And this was because of your conversation with Lazo, God's relentless love towards us. So her, the, the God, the gods in this book, but God himself towards Orwell, we don't, you don't really realize until you look in hindsight, but God, the gods were pursuing Orwell in a very beautiful way. We saw it when she's walking up the mountain and she feels a happiness and a joy. Why can't I be married? But then she shuts it down because of her pride and her ego. She sees the palace. The palace is, I think Lazo said, the palace is love. I mean, that is the husband, the God of the Mount, the Amber Palace, the fulfillment of your longing. She got a glimpse of it, is pursuing, but because of her ego, she couldn't quite see it. So you do see that theme in here that despite her best efforts, let's just say that of her ego, to prevent the gods away, there was glimpses of them pursuing her heart. To quote Augustine, you called, you shouted, you broke through my deafness. Yes, and they did here. Like as you wrote, you read in the quote of the week, the letter, she's a practical, lives a practical life, sins, but was still won over by the gods. Hmm. Then my final humility, we can go to that now. Okay, let's do that because we've only got a couple of minutes. We've got to wrap this baby up. Yes, we do. Okay, so humility. It just made me think of what I mentioned. I don't know if I mentioned this before we started recording or not, but it reminded me of your conversation with Lazo of the rebel in dropping the arms in mere Christianity. So laying down arms, laying down of arms. We talked about it. I think you said it before when she's in the river on her knees, she actually it's only when she's on her knees in a state of humility that she sees the palace at the end. Yes. We're not giving anything away because you have people have heard the Lazo interview, the love where she falls down in like a postrated position and says, love you potentially on the forehead. He posits, I mean, Humility is the key. In Carvatis Inse, how do you go outwards? You think of the other, you humble yourself, you forget about yourself. That's the key to all of receiving God's love, to being like Lucy, to seeing Aslan, to putting down your arms, all of that. That was my way of summarizing all that in like 30 seconds. <laughs> I think that was a beautiful summary. <laughs> I am no answer, as Lazo says. <laughs> Matt, you are no answer. <laughs> yes, that's all I got. Well, the only other thing I wanted to do was read a poem that was sent in by a listener, Nicholas. Uh, and it's a poem about the great divorce, but I think it's very applicable to Till We Have Faces as well. He wrote, We are shadow, you and me, not yet acclimated to eternity. We are not yet complete. The grass hurts our feet. How truly young is redeemed humanity. Ho, 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 ho. That is brilliant. There is a lot of truth in five sentences, five lines. He apologized for it not being a haiku. Uh, but yeah. this is Orwell. She turns from being a shadowy person to towards us being a solid spirit. That's incredible. 
Well, as we wrap up this season again, we want to thank our listeners. You guys are incredible. You are our friends. We want to thank you for the feedback, the emails, the Twitter responses, the Facebook conversations. We want to thank our Patreons most importantly. I don't know if I should have said most importantly. Yeah, most importantly. We want to thank you for your support. <laughs> Everyone is equally important. Um, but, we, but we do make a point of thanking our top tier supporters, Kate and Rowdy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we, yeah, you guys are phenomenal. Thank you so much for the encouragement, the reviews. If you're still listening after this 45, 50 minutes, please, if you haven't, leave another review. We love it. You guys are helping us so much to spread this ministry. And please join us next week when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.